Okay, why don't we why don't we get started again here? So, we we laid out the so far what are the challenges of Bible study that people face all over the country, all over the world. We talked about these two ways of reasoning, deduction and induction. Both are are valid, both have their place, but both can be misused. And the, the thesis that I laid out so far is that, is that induction has a especially valuable role in, in coming to the scriptures for our, our Bible study. Okay, so, so there's, a, there's a word here that is, again, kind of a fancy word that we, hermeneutics, that I'll, I'll sometimes use here. So what does the word hermeneutics mean? Exactly. So uh, the word, it comes from a Greek word, hermenevo, which means to interpret. And it is, it is used about how to interpret text, how to, how to study text. Um, it, it actually isn't just limited to the Bible. It can be used if you're reading Homer or Aristotle or some ancient author. What do they really mean? What, are they, what, are they, what was their actual intent here? And what inductive Bible study represents is... A way, it's not the only way, but it's a way of doing hermeneutics. It's a way of trying to get at the, uh, the, the meaning of the text. So it's, hermeneutics is sometimes called the, the science of interpretation, the discipline of interpretation. Here is a, uh, here's what we're going to do now is we're going to lay out at a high level what are the steps of doing inductive Bible study, and then we're going to go deeper into each of the three steps. So there's only three steps, so as, as, um, as much as we've been talking about it, you'll be surprised at its simplicity. So step one of, so steps of, I, I sometimes write it as IBS, inductive Bible study. So step one is observe and ask. We'll talk about all of these in a little bit. Step two is answer and interpret. And then step three is apply. Okay? So observe and ask, answer and interpret, and apply. We're going to be doing this a lot this week, and we're going to walk through, with all of our Bible studies, we're going to walk through very simply these three steps. Okay, so let's, let's walk through this. The, the first way that we can, we, we should, the first thing that we should do is thinking about what is the power of, of observation here. Okay, so I mentioned this before, but one of the problems in our typical Bible study is that we, we have this presumed familiarity. We think we know what the Bible says. We think we know what the story says. We think we know what this passage says. And, and so we, we tend to read quickly. We tend to like just say, oh, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. Um, but what, what this is going to do is going to slow us down. It's going to put the brakes on, and it's going to help us to actually break out of that mold and start to make observations and, and ask questions that we wouldn't otherwise normally do. Okay, so 
we're gonna we're you, this is gonna be much more obvious in the next four days when we actually do it about how terrible people are at observing and asking questions. Okay, I've been doing inductive Bible studies now for 31 years, and uh, most people are just like you put the Bible a Bible text in front of them and they miss so much so much of what's there. They miss the questions, and you're gonna, I think you'll be convinced of this by the time the week is done, that most people are just really, really bad at this kind of, of query, okay? And, and so what, what the goal of this is to do is to also arouse our curiosity, okay? So one of the great things about observing and asking is how powerful it is to, to get us engaged, okay? So I, I like to to illustrate this with how, how all the media outlets, how Hollywood, how everybody functions, is they function by creating a sense of, of mystery. Okay, so here's, here's an example of this. So I'm gonna tell you a little story here. So it was a very, very windy and stormy evening. The, the winds were howling, the rain was pouring down. All of a sudden, the, the, we're gonna zoom in to a house uh, on a street with a whole bunch of oak trees. And again, the rain is coming down. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's wind. And all of a sudden, the door flies open, the front door flies open, and a woman comes running out and she's crying. She's just crying and crying and crying. And just as she runs out, a black Cadillac pulls up in front of the house and she gets into this Cadillac. As she's getting into the Cadillac though, she drops her purse her purse opens and you can see there's a very valuable, huge green emerald in this purse. She drives off in this Cadillac in the back seat of, the, of this vehicle, the end, okay? So now, what have I done in that story, right? You got all these questions, okay? Who's this woman? Why was she crying? What's this jewel about? Who was driving the Cadillac, right? Like, all of a sudden, I'm like, I guarantee you, you would want to know the end of the story. And I was just making that story up so there was no real end to it. But, uh, uh, but it was a pretty good opener, right? Uh, and, and the whole reason that people watch movies and TV shows and all that, right, is there's this sense of like, oh, I got to know what's going to happen to this, right? Like there's this sense of like, fill me in on this. So the, the way that we, that we do well in approaching the Bible is by creating a sense of like, wait a minute, like, what does this mean? There's, you, you ought to have this sense after this first step of like all this unresolved set of questions. Like, ah, and we're gonna, we're gonna do this. And we're gonna, you're gonna be at the point where after step one, tell me what the answer is. I gotta know what the answer is, right? Um, if you don't actually stop and ask a lot of questions, there's no, there's no curiosity involved. There's no, you haven't engaged a part of, of you that is a God-given part which is that we are supposed to be curious people who, are, who love to, to, uh, to ask and answer questions. I'm going to read you some quotes here from some authors who have made the sense, the same observation. So this is Daniel Fuller. He says, people never think until they are faced with a problem. The essence of inductive Bible study, in fact, is to look at statements in Scripture long enough until one becomes troubled about something and then to try out various possibilities until one is found that makes things cohere. Next one. What distinguishes humans from all other species 
is the capacity to formulate questions and to find answers that lead to more questions. Okay, that's Ronald Kotelak who says that. So he says, this is what makes us human. The animals aren't out there pondering these mysteries of, of life and what these texts mean, right? This is a uniquely human endeavor. Albert Einstein, famous scientist, says, the important thing is to not stop questioning. Never lose a holy curiosity. <clears throat> okay, so Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. He's presuming that his disciples are curious, hungry people who have all these questions that they're trying to resolve. Now, one of the, one of the questions that I sometimes like to ask people when they come to our house and visit is like, what are you thinking about? What are you wrestling with? What are the kinds of things? And, and if people don't have an answer, like right off the top of their head, I'm like, ah, you haven't cultivated that holy curiosity. You should, we should all be wrestling with scriptures. We should always have something that we're tackling and trying to, trying to answer. And very, very consistently, I have noticed that the people who are the most successful in life are always just like pondering and wrestling and weighing and trying to, to come to a place of, of, of clarity in this. Um, okay, so, so this, this first step here, again, we're going to learn the best about this by actually doing it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give a few categories here of, of, of observation. Uh, so we're going to expand on this a little bit here. And again, we'll, we'll learn best by doing this. So one of the things that we're first going to learn is to ask and to observe is what is the context? Okay. And then we're going to talk about content. And then we won't get to spend as much time on this, unfortunately, due to time constraints but are the devices, the literary devices that are used. Okay, so context. What are some questions that we should be asking about the context of a book or a passage when we read it? Who's it written for? Who's it written for? What's the, what's the original audience? Okay, if, if we don't know who something is written for, it's like, what are we doing? Like, what, we're, we're, we're not even, we haven't even begun to enter into the world of that author. So that's a really important question. Yes. Please. Yeah, what's your name? Yeah. Jacob. Jacob. Is, is it true or false? Is, is, what do you mean, is it true or false? Is the book true or is it uh, fiction? Oh, okay. You mean like what's the genre of the book? Yeah. Is it, is it written as like, is it a parable? Is it an epistle? Okay, good. Genre is another one. Yes. Uh, Marcus. Time frames. Yeah, what time was it written? Like, Sometimes people are reading a book, they don't even know what century it was written in. And again, like, it's important, right? Like, what, what's going on with the people that the, this book is written to? What's his reason for writing? What's the motivation for writing the book? Very good. Thanks, more. Yes. Thank, thank you, Micah. Who's the author, right? Who's the author? And what's the role that this author has to the community that he's writing to? It is helpful to understand the culture, and, and as we'll see, that can go, sometimes people can go too far with that and get so consumed with that, but I agree with you. It's, it is important to know the culture and, the, and who the people are that they're writing to. Is it Greco-Roman? Is it Jewish? Gentile? You know, in Song of Solomon, who, who's that for? Who, what, who's that book written to? Is it written to married people? Is it written to Israel? What's, what in the world is that book about? What, what, what else on context? 
what is its what? Polemic? Can, um, so polemic is, for those who don't know, polemic is like an argument that someone's making. So can you unpack that a little bit? I think a lot of things are sort of written against something. Mm -hmm. Like there's some kind of a cultural thing that's maybe it's Hellenism or something in an okay. so context. Yeah. And so they're coming against that. And if you don't quite understand what they're trying to attack, you will attack your enemy with and it might be a little misguided. Or okay. Okay. Yeah. Good, thank you. Let's talk about content now. So content, I'm just going to give you some, some thoughts here on what we're looking for. Who are the characters in the passage that we're looking at? Uh, how are the characters interacting and what are their relationships? What is, what is the place and the setting in which the characters are operating? So not where the audience is, but the characters in the story itself. Are there time references that are given? What are the action verbs that are used? Are there any allusions or quotations of other passages that are there? Uh, what are the numbers that are in the passage? So numbers are often very important because if the Bible gives a number, it usually, it's because there's some significance, not always, but often there's significance. Uh, what, do, what do key words mean that might be uncertain? So there's a lot in that about about uh, the content there that, again, we're going to do a lot of this and practice it. Okay, so the, we're not going to spend as much time on this, but let's just, let's just spend two minutes on this with literary devices. What are, what are examples of literary devices that are used in the Bible or in any literature? Okay, analogy, good. Okay, so parables are a, a form of a literary device. Sure, that's good. Uh, What's that? I can carry a couple of things here. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Okay, so anthropomorphism, anybody ever know what that is? No. So, okay, so anthropomorphism, you go ahead, Delbert, define that for us. So yeah, and anthrop I would say I'd say a little bit differently. So anthropos is the word for, for person, and uh, morphic is to change. So basically, when you um, it's when you take something that's not a human, and you make it you in, you describe it in ways or in, with qualities that make it seem like it's human. Anybody can anybody think of a good example of an anthropomorphism? Uh, What's that? A fable. So, what, can you give an example of that? Uh huh. They use animals and they act like humans. Yeah. Okay. Animation. What do you mean by that? Okay. Okay. So, so an example. Yeah. With with God. Okay. Yeah. We can do that. So, an example that I'm thinking of is where Jesus says, or in the in the Old Testament, it says, "The trees will clap their hands." right? Or the rocks will cry out. Okay, so like trees don't literally have hands that they're going to be clapping. Rocks aren't literally going to be talking. But he's, he's using the language of, that humans would use to express this like truth of like the longing of creation here, right? Um, so whenever you use kind of human type language on non-human objects, trees, rocks, whatever it is, those, those are anthropomorphic devices that are, that are poetic devices. They're very beautiful devices. Than, that are designed to express very, very deep truths about how creation is, is, op is going to operate. What are other literary devices? 
chiasms. Um, okay, you're using a, another fancy word here. What is a chi chiasm? Okay, okay. So yeah, chiasm. This is actually a very common literary device. So there's a there's a Greek letter which is the letter he, um, or some people pronounce it chi, but he is, would be a little more accurate. And you can see the letter he looks like an X, right? And what what happens in a chiasm is you have something like a pattern like this. So A B. B prime and A. Okay, so can anyone think of a good example of a chiasm? This is a hard question. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Very good. Very good. The first will be last and the last will be first. Okay, so first, last, last, first. Can everyone hear that? And it's very pleasing to our ears when we hear that. Um, John F. Kennedy, the former president from Boston, said... Um, Ask not what you can do for your country, ask what your country, no, no. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? We love that, right? It just, to our ears, it sounds very melodious and very beautiful, right? So if we did that one, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? And there's almost like a mirror image in that, in that statement that he uses there. So the Bible uses chiasms a lot. They're all over the place. And they've always been pleasing to the human ear and, uh, and, and often they're designed to express very important, especially memorable truths. Give us a couple of other literary devices. Mirism. All right, another fancy word. Uh, what, what is a mirism? Go for it. Alpha to omega. So a mirism is where the, the ends stand for the whole. Okay, so if we say from A to Z, alpha to omega, David says, you know when I, when I rise and when I lie down. Does he saying that, oh, you don't know the middle part of my day when I'm, when I'm walking around in that day? Of course not. He's, he's describing the bookends of his day and saying, you know the whole there. And so it's, it's a common literary device that's used, again, poetically to, to express a truth. What are some other examples of devices? Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Okay, good. That's, and that's an important one that, that sometimes people can, can miss. Um, and they, they can wrongfully make conclusions that are based on hyperbolic statements that you're like, ah, eh. actually you're not really being sensitive to the literary devices that are used there. There's actually a bunch more. We won't go through all of them, but. What's the one Paul uses when he poses those questions that he answers himself? Say that again? When Paul poses those questions that he answers himself, should we go on saying that? Not at all, right? Right. So, what, what is that called? Anybody know? When you pose a question, but you're not really looking for someone to answer it, you're just stating that? Rhetorical? It's a rhetorical question, right? So, a rhetorical question is where you throw out a statement shall we then go on sinning? May it never be. Um, so that's a great example there. A couple more. There's, there's, a, there's a lot more. I have, I have a list here that I'm looking at that's very, very long. Okay. 
So there's, there's literary devices, like there's simple ones like turning points and climax. So probably in high school, you, you like did that, right? When you read your Charles Dickens and, and people like that. So often there are these key turning points in books that are very defining for the, the course of the book. Okay, so for example, uh, when we go to the book of, of, it was originally one book, Samuel, first, of course we divided it up into two, first and second Samuel. What's the turning point in the book of Samuel? When what? So I would say that is that is a progression towards the turning point, um, but but that's pretty early. I think that's in chapter eight, somewhere around there. Uh, usually the the kind of the, the turning point tends to be a little more in the middle or even in the end of the the book. But that's a good thought. The whole the whole the whole set the whole book of Samuel. The what? When Saul gets rejected by being, being king? Okay, so, so there is a, actually, do I have a slide on this? I don't have, I'm not plugged in, it's not, it's not that important. I would make the case, I think these are all really important events, but I would make the case that, that the, the key turning point in the book of Samuel is actually David's sin, because it, it, it's moving towards this like, amazing uh, highlight of, of David, who you think is gonna be this amazing king, but then he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he kills Uriah, and the whole rest of the book, we watch this unraveling of the house of David there. And David was this man after God's own heart. And we're like, yes, 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 finally, we're going to get this right. Because Saul was a disappointment, right? Like, we were all hope hopeful that Saul would be this amazing person. David comes in. He kills Goliath. He's this awesome king. But then he himself, like, just messes up with, with big sin. And that, unfortunately, causes his whole house to, to unravel. Um, so... There's many, many examples of literary devices that, that um, we won't have time to get through here, but they're, they're all uh, different ones that the Bible uses. Okay, so now, step two here, answer and interpret, is what we're going to do next. So we're going to pose all these questions and make all these observations, and what we're going to do collectively here is we are going to answer, attempt to answer those questions. And what you're going to find when we go through our Bible studies, we are not going to be able to answer all the questions. We're gonna have we're gonna generate so many questions, and we're gonna we're all gonna feel frustrated because we're gonna be running out of time, and we're gonna think like uh, off of a very short passage, we're gonna think like no, I want this question answered, and we're gonna be all like hungering for more because because there's unresolved questions, right? Just like in the story that I told. So we're gonna do our best to answer as many as we can, but it's gonna be limited in what we can actually accomplish. And then what we're gonna do is this key step of interpretation. Okay, so. What, what do I mean by interpretation? The, the key idea of interpretation is what did the author intend for the original audience? Okay, so this is the driving point of step two, is to get to this point about what is the author's intent? Okay, and people jump over this all the time and they make huge mistakes of interpretation because they don't take time to articulate what was the original author's intent to the original audience. Okay, so I'll give an example here. In the book of Galatians, I have heard people describe Galatians so many times and it drives me crazy because so often people forget that what is the, the key like interpretation of that passage. Before we get to application, what is the key interpretation of Galatians? 
like if you had to distill it down, Paul's original authorial intent that he was giving to his original audience. Right, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Specifically, they don't have to be circumcised in order to become Christians, okay? That in one sentence is the message of Galatians, okay? So people jump over that all the time. And I hear people grab verses about, you know, fruit of the spirit and all those things. Great, great verses, awesome verses. I love those verses as well. But they've taken those verses out of the original context of what Paul is actually trying to accomplish there and get crazy, wacko ideas about what, Paul is trying to say. I would make the case that a lot of what Martin Luther did, you know, Galatians was one of his favorite books, and Martin Luther was a very, um, very influential person in the time of the Reformation, and what he thought the main question about Galatians was, how does a person with a guilty conscience have that guilty conscience cleansed by God, okay? He thought that was the question. Now, that, there's, that's a great question to ask and answer. That is a phenomenal question to, to ask and answer. We, we, ha, we need to have an answer to that question. But you know what? Galatians' driving question isn't actually trying to answer that. Galatians is trying to answer a question about who's in the church and are Gentiles in? What are the conditions of Gentiles coming in and all that? That's the main point. And if you think that the, the main point of a book is something about a question that you're not, that the original author wasn't trying to answer in that, you can get to pretty wrong conclusions there, right? And for better or for worse, Luther, um, unfortunately, I think, made some mistakes in his interpretation there that have, have haunted the whole world for now many, many centuries, okay? So this step here, what did the original author intend for the original audience is foundational. If you can't say this, then you, we have no business going to the application step. Why? Why is it dangerous to go to application without first understanding the author's intent? I've kind of been touching on this a little bit, but... Yes, we will misinterpret the text and apply it wrongly. Okay, good. Thanks, Micah. What, what else? Or, or maybe other examples or concerns that you would have on this? I think we'd be applying what other people think that it means, not their author, or what we want to see in, inside the text. Uh, yeah, I think I know what you're saying. Can you, um, can you just give an example or, or maybe restate what you said? Amen. That's, that's spot on. I love that example. And that is an excellent, excellent example of misinterpretation because of not taking the time to really do well and understand the, the interpretation here. What, what are some safeguards that we can use here? And, and all these are just safeguards. They're not guarantees at all. Unfortunately, there's no guarantees in, in the realm of Bible study. But what are some safeguards that we might have to, to, to make sure that our interpretation 
isn't wrong because the interpretation is so important, getting the author's intent is so important. We want to have some guardrails here to know that we're not in some bizarre place. Mark. Okay, yeah, so, so that's a, a really good one. So one, one safeguard for this is, or guardrail, is does it match the early church? And, and people can go to extreme places here for sure, um, but I'd like to just spend a couple of minutes on the role of the early church and how to use the early church properly not abandoning it, not saying, ah, oh, those old people, we don't need to listen to them, but not also idol using idolatry with the early church. So let's spend a minute on this, because this is something that should be very important to all of us if we care about biblical interpretation. So how can we use the early church well, and then how can we use the early church badly? Okay, so, so very important that we want to subordinate all the words of any early church author, whether it's Clement or Irenaeus or whoever, certainly to scripture and certainly to Jesus' teachings. So you worry sometimes when people are quoting Clement or something like that as much as they're quoting the Bible and they're kind of interpreting the Bible through other writers there. So that's a, that's a good caution. Yeah, so looking for consensus across time and space. So, so that's very powerful. One of the things that we want to do in our interpretation is make sure that we're not coming up with some like crazy idea that is just not in keeping with the consensus of what people believe. So if it's the case, actually, let me, before I say this, what, why, why does the early church actually have value? What is, what is the value of the early church? Like, wh why do we even care about them? Yeah. So they, they're in the culture, right? So they're, they're in the culture. They know all the sensitivities there. When, when Clement of Rome, for example, is writing, he's in dialogue with the church at Corinth like 40, 50 years after Paul writes their letter. Uh, Paul writes his letter there. I mean, that's very valuable information to know how that original audience is interacting with it. So that's, that's good. What else? Language. Language. Who said that? What's your name? That's very, very important. So this is one of my big hobby horses, that uh, language is something that we have way too much overconfidence about in, in our uh, reading of the Bible. So, so um, I'll, I'll say I, I grew up in a bilingual home. My parents speak an Indian language called Malayalam to each other. They often speak in that language to my brother and myself. I'm not very good at Malayalam, I answer back in English, but nonetheless, I know enough where they speak to me in that and I can respond in English. And, and, uh, and so I, I was constantly kind of going back and forth between these two worlds of America and India. And the realm of language is one that just fascinates me endlessly because people can, can think that they know what something means, but they miss idioms and subtleties that are, are just gonna throw them off. Okay, so I, I used to teach a class in, in here for the bridge, uh, which was called Learn English by Studying the Bible. And what I would do in that class is every, every session, I would, I would give about five or six new idioms that would be uh, for the students to, to, to use and incorporate. Okay, so 
uh, he's out of the woods. Okay, so like, you know, like, like what, what in the world? He's out of the woods. Why do we say that? Um, and we mean he's out of danger. Okay, you can kind of get that. Like, once you explain that, it, it makes a little, a little bit of sense. It came out of left field. Left field? What's, what's the right field? What's the left field? What are you talking about? What's, what's coming out of left field? Um, one, of my, one of my favorite examples that I used was, I was uh, speaking right here, this very place, to a group of people, and I said, let's talk about the idiom, they hit it off. And what do you think that means, they hit it off? They were very angry at each other. They beat each other up. I mean, these are the answers you get, right? And they're like, sorry, I'm apologizing for English. It actually means that they got along really well, and they really <laughs> liked each other, right? And, you know, of course, everyone's like, what is this? What kind of crazy language is this that we're coming into here, right? But, but there's a lot of examples of that in any language, every single language. Every single language has all kinds of idioms that when you hear it, you're like, this doesn't make any sense. But if you grow up in it, you just don't even think about it, right? And I guarantee you, today, you will probably hear at least 50 to 100 idioms you won't even think about it, and you're just processing it so quickly, and you're getting it right because you grew up in a context where these idioms are used. Guess what? There's also idioms in the Bible, right? And these idioms are ones that we can very easily miss, and sometimes they're very hard to translate properly. Uh, I, I one of the reasons I love biblical languages is that it helps you to become sensitive to all of these these idioms and to read well in a, in a careful manner there. So, so this is another reason why the early church is so valuable. They're picking up on these idioms because their mother tongue was Koine Greek for most of the early church, um, was Koine Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. And when you read people like Clement of Alexandria or Clement of Rome or Irenaeus, they're writing all this in Koine Greek. Wow, what a huge, 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 huge resource that is to be able to have that. Okay, we're, our time is going quickly here. Um, maybe in the interest of time, we'll, we'll, we'll table some of the discussion on the early church. It's useful for helping us understand terms to see what their, what their interpretation was. I'm very nervous if we're coming up with interpretations that nobody's heard uh, before. Uh, but we can, be, we can also go too far where we're like so into them that we're like quoting them more than scripture or using them almost above scripture. In our last six minutes here, uh, let's talk about this process of applying, okay? So we can only apply the text to ourselves once we've gone through, at least in the inductive process, um, we can only apply uh, once we have, have uh, gone through these steps. Okay, so application is what a lot of people jump to, right? So when most people read the Bible, they don't go through these first steps. They just start with this here. And they've missed a tremendous amount here by not, by not doing this. Okay, so why is this so important? Uh, and, and what does good application look like? The application is, for a lot of us, one of the main reasons, and it should be the main reason why we are coming to the Word of God. Uh, it's, it's very sad that right now we live in this world where a lot of what happens here in number one and number two I'm going to use generalizations here. This isn't always true. But a lot of what happens here is commentaries. And there's this whole world of people that are writing these big, thick books. I have some of them on my shelf. There's huge, thick books on, hey, what does this text mean? And let's get into this word and dissect this phrase and look, look at all the devices. 
but then it stops short and they don't go to the application stage and they develop all this, this incredible horsepower to get to their notion of interpretation, but then this is cut off. And then you have the, the whole other world of people that they don't really do this and they're down here and they're jumping to this application stage, typical church member. That's jumping to application without having done the necessary prep work to get there well. What I'm going to say here is that when we go through, when you go through this with the mindset of first laying out, like, okay, these are my propositions. This is my situation. These are the people that I'm upset about. These are the questions that I have about myself, my life, my church, my future. I'm laying all these out before the word of God. And when you go through this process, one of the things that we're going to see is going to begin to jump out very organically and very naturally as we do this, a whole bunch of applications. And what we're going to do here in our, our sessions over the week is we're going to have these applications be ones that are, are hopefully very real. So I'm going to give a few guidelines on this when we, for doing our applications. This is from an author named Olsberg. Um, but the first one is we want to, as we apply, we want to be prayerful. Okay, because now what we're doing is this, this leap from what was the author's intent to how is this going to affect my life. I want us to be vulnerable. Okay, and this is again where a lot of the standard, more academic approaches to scripture just don't, they fall short because unless you can actually lay it out and say, hey, uh, I had an argument with my spouse yesterday and this text that we just read spoke to me about this particular issue. Like, if we don't go to that level of, of in-depth discussions, then we're going to miss what the Holy Spirit is ultimately trying to do in our lives by changing us. We want to be specific. Okay, so when, when I do my, my Bible studies here, it's not, so I want to love someone better, but like, for example, I, I did an uh, inductive Bible study a couple days ago, and I wrote out, uh, reach out to, I won't use his name here, but reach out to X, and I, and I put his name in my journal. I journal every day when I do my Bible studies. And so my application wasn't just, I want to be a nice person, but it was, you know, call this person because I'm, I'm worried that he's drifting away, right? And it just, it came to me so powerfully as a result of doing that. Um, and, and then be, be risky. Be a person who's not afraid to, to take risks for, for what you are seeing the word of God speak to you here. As we wrap up here, um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make a couple high-level comments. What we're going to do is every day I'm going to bring out a sheet of paper. Uh, I'll pass them around, and we're going to spend time going through each one of these steps we're going to use small groups, and then we're going to come together as a big group in order to walk through each of the steps. And I, with all my heart, I believe that the primary way that God wants to interact with you, with me, with everybody in this room, is through his word. This is the way, the main way, it's not the only way, but it's the main way that God has, wants to interact with us as, as humans here. My deep prayer and desire for all of you is that you are going to throw yourself in with all of your heart and mind and soul and being into the text, believing that this is how God wants to communicate to you. But guess what? The spirit is not opposed to 
discipline and structure. A lot of people think that like, oh, the Holy Spirit's over here and he just, just does these things at random in, in ways that nobody can, can predict or control. In fact, so much of how the Spirit works is, is through effort and diligence, right? There's a, there's a beautiful Bible verse that a lot of us uh, quote and know about being diligent in Scripture. Can anybody quote that for us? Right. Study um, yourself. Be diligent, some translations say there. So this is going to be a diligent process, so we're going to see the convergence of diligence and the Holy Spirit working in harmony together. All right. It is exactly 10 o'clock, so we will end for today. We have now a 30-minute break, and then uh, Brother Charlton will be doing the next session.